This is Sling Talks. Thanks for joining us. This week on the show, I wanted to talk about prompt engineering. Prompt engineering, which is the process of writing instructions for large language models, is a topic on the mind of basically everyone in AI, including those of us who spend our time training models. Jonathan Pedouim joins us today. Jonathan is the founder of PromptLayer, building the future of dev tools for prompt engineers. Jonathan studied at the Cooper Union, and he's worked in software and data at Clarif AI and Facebook. Before PromptLayer, he was the founder of Evant, an SMS engagement platform for communities. We talk about the past, present, and future of prompt engineering. We discuss techniques like prompt tuning, auto-prompt engineering, and chain-of-thought reasoning. We talk through trends in prompt engineering, especially how prompts have changed through GPT-3, 3.5, and 4. And we try to make some predictions about the future of the field. Jonathan and I definitely don't agree on everything, which I think made for a great conversation. The audio quality this week unfortunately wasn't the best because Jonathan and I were both traveling, but I thought the content was really interesting and that it was still a conversation worth sharing. So welcome to Sling Talks, Jonathan. To kick us off, I thought I'd start with an easy one. Can you tell us what is prompt engineering? <laughs> well, first of all, I want to thank you for having me. It's good to be on this podcast. So prompt engineering is the act of getting an LLM to perform a specific task, right? So an LLM is like kind of like a universal worker in some sense. And if you want to get it to do a specific task for you, you need to kind of engineer the zero shot or one of few shot type instructions that you give it. So prompt engineering is that process. And at PromptLayer, we build a platform to help you get that done. So I'm curious, I guess prompt engineering comes from kind of like taking classical machine learning tasks or any kind of like task where you have like a clear set of inputs, a clear type of output, you want the model to do like one thing. And so prompt engineering, right, is how you use prompts to use large models like ChatGPT to perform a single task. I guess I'm curious, first, do you use ChatGPT like in your own life? Oh, yeah, all the time. I use ChatGPT, Copilot, a lot of stuff. When you use ChatGPT, like I use it all the time for lots of stuff, do you feel like a prompt engineer? Like, is that still prompt engineering when you're just trying to get ChatGPT to answer your question? Or is that like a different type of use case? That's a different type of use case, I would say, from like a hardcore prompt engineer. Because generally, you could go like zero shot them. Like you ask your question. I ask it a lot of like technical questions for like coding stuff or like grammatical stuff. I ask it a lot too. There, usually you ask it and you don't really need to do any engineering to get the answer back. But sometimes that user experience like requires you to ask again or paste back an error, as opposed to like the prompt engineering that I refer to when I speak about prompt engineering and where our platform focuses on is when you have an application that's in production, right? And interactiveness may not necessarily be a chat or it's not like a universal chat, like chat GPT. It's something that you don't want it really to respond in certain ways or you don't want it to your customer to actually have to interact beyond one or two touch points. So an example here would be, I guess, error tracking is a good one, right? Like where if you as a developer see an error in your code, you can copy and paste the error into ChatGPT and say, hey, what the hell's going on? And that's fine. That'll probably work. If you are Sentry or Datadog or some platform where a huge part of what you're trying to do is error tracking and you want to automate this, you want to like capture the error in the application, send it to ChatGPT, just give someone some instructions in a specific format. It's very different than like having a chat interface. So I guess like everyone's obsessed with chat. One thing I'm wondering about is like, is prompt engineering an alternative to chat? Like when you think about interfaces, is there like a separation between like the world of chat and the world of prompt engineering? There is a hundred percent. There's a lot of modalities in the prompt engineering space. One is the user experience, right? You have a, a modality of like cat user experiences. You still need a prompt engineer in those cases. I mean, think of the new GPT, like launch your own GPT feature that came out last Monday. Like that is prompt engineering 
for a chat user experience. Then there are non-chat user experiences, like one you just described with like a couple of century or stuff like that, where the experience may not even be that the customer knows they're interacting with an LLM. It just shows up on your dashboard, a little piece of information or notifications. So they're definitely, I think they both have prompt engineering and there's different aspects to that. The chat being like, chat's like one modality. And if anything, it sounds like you don't care so much about prompting for chat because you're like, if you're in a chat environment, it's easy. And importantly, like if you fuck up and your prompt is terrible, you could just run it again, you know, just send another message to get it better. We do care and we have some customers that are working on chain. It's just like, for example, we have an app that's like a meditation app for parenting, right? So it's an app that, it's a chat app, but not like a full-on chat. It's like maybe two or three touch points where it's like, hey, you know, uh, how, did, how was your interaction yesterday with this and so-and-so kid, right? So they prompt engineer in order for their, you know, for GPT not to like use the wrong name of the kid or to talk about something that didn't happen or to like give advice that, according to their platform, is not good advice. So we do have that, right? But like, we also have people in the other case where it's like not really a chat experience. Okay, so when you are prompt engineering for chat, is that essentially just like, Right now, we've got to talk about like GPTs because of the big launch from AI. Like the idea with chat GPTs, if I understand, you give custom instructions to models and then they'll be turned in a specific direction somewhat. And then you could like use chat GPT as a chat interface, same exact way as you'd use chat GPT, but it's like a little bent in a certain direction. You could use custom instructions, tell it your name, tell it your kids' names, tell it your age, where you live, et cetera. When you talk about like prompt engineering for chat, is that basically people building GPTs? Yes. Yes, but then the, the thing that, like, a little bit more sophisticated of an app would inject data from their, like, Postgres database and store some of that in instead of, like, like, for example, like, the relationship of the family would be in the database and that gets injected as context in our lingo, the prompt template that would be used for the chat. In chat GPTs, they don't have that yet, but I'm sure with their assistance API and stuff like that, they're adding that, essentially. They're giving that ability to do that, but yeah. Okay, this is the big question, I think, for everyone thinking about prompt engineers. Is prompt engineering, in your eyes, do you see it as more art or science? By which I mean, like, is there, are there principles by which you can reason about prompts? Is there, like, a science where you think systematically you can, like, write the best prompt? Or is it more like an experimentation kind of approach where it's just, like, try whatever, see how it goes? I think, like, there is a little bit of both now, art and science. But I think that, like, Same thing, like, you know, oh, use this word and don't use that word type of stuff in uh, LLMs. Like, that eventually, I think, is going to go to the wayside of, like, you know, I remember at the beginning, people were saying, like, if you tell ChatGPT that they're, like, what's the name of the guy that, like, created Python? Uh, Van Rosen or whatever his name is. I don't really know. But if you tell ChatGPT to pretend that it... Benevolent dictator of Python. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. If you you tell ChatGPT to pretend that it's that guy, then it'll perform better. That type of stuff, like, that's like a little bit of a science or mixture magic type thing. That's going to leave, right? But beyond that, I think it's like English, right? When you write an essay or you write a technical document or, or something like that, you need to be expressive, right? You need to know how to express yourself and write what you want to get done exactly, right? So I think like prompt engineering in the future is just going to become kind of that type of like content management type situation where you have to like write out exactly what the instructions that you want the, the GPT or the L1 to do for you. I guess you're talking about clear instructions, but then you also mentioned this kind of like, just tell it it's Albert Einstein and it'll suddenly be really good at physics and stuff. I mean, it, it sounds like those hacks still work, right? Like the, they do. There are a bunch of others like take a deep breath. Right, they do, but I think eventually we'll, those things will fall away. 
Right. By which you mean like when you say take a deep breath, you are Albert Einstein, it won't actually improve the quality of the text. It might change it a little bit. Exactly. But it's still going to give the same quality outputs without it. Yeah. It's not like a big claim given that it's so universal. Like every LLM has these properties right now. They've been shrinking. It's true. Like with GPT-3, that used to be like way more present that it was way harder to come up with these complex prompts. It's gotten easier. Now it's like take a deep breath rather than like a long ass paragraph. But yeah, so it's not like and there's like, Completing factors, and then we gotta like work through it. So, it's like my mental model is like from first principles, like when you're talking about information content in your instructions, right? Does that fact that you say, pretend you're Albert Einstein, expert in physics, whatever, does that add more information to your instructions, right? If we're talking purely from an entropy perspective, does that add more information? So it doesn't, right? It doesn't. So in theory, it, it, this is my interpretation, my understanding, right? In theory, quite my mental model, that is useless information. The reason why it works is it's an artifact of the training regime of training on data on the internet. And because in the internet, when it sees language like that, it is like correlated or associated with more factual information. It like kind of, you know, it projects the latent space, whatever, to better answers, right? Now, if we improve the training regime or we have like a critic, whatever type situation where it could, you know, kind of teach itself not to pay attention to those things, then I think from that perspective will become unnecessary. But just to, to TLDR, it's like just from first principles, it's not, it's, that doesn't add any information. So it sounds, I mean, just this attention to information, if I'm understanding the way that you're thinking of information, you're kind of talking about in-context learning, right? So just to define in-context learning as opposed to prompt engineering, in-context learning is the idea that like, if you can have a model learn in prompt, like if you have a really long context window where the model has information and then you pass in just the classic, I think, example you can imagine would be, what if you could take an entire medical textbook, put the entire thing inside of a prompt, and then ask the model to diagnose the disease? And as opposed to normal machine learning, where the model like goes through the information and like adds it to its weights and codes it, learns these mechanisms to you know efficiently be able to diagnose people, it's a little less efficient, but it could be more powerful. It can learn this entire medical textbook by having it in the prompt, and then it can like apply it to some specific diagnosis at inference time, right? So if we when you talk about information, am I understanding correctly you're talking about this kind of framing of in-context learning, which might be different than prompt engineering, which is more, might more generally include things like take a deep breath, think step by step? Well, to be honest, but by the way, just like, uh, obviously, yeah. Kevin, this is just like my, like, I don't know if any of this will be true. These are just my thoughts, right? Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Like, I guess to some extent, it is like the whole in-context learning of, you know, being able to learn that type of stuff. But like, really what it comes down to is like, do I think that there could be another training regime or some sort of like post-processing uh, paradigm that like makes this model a little bit more mature in the sense that it, it doesn't get... You're just saying like, what if like take a deep breath always helps? And so instead of saying it, we just train the model to learn exactly. take a deep breath every exactly. single time. Exactly, no, yeah. yeah. So there are, I guess there, there are kind of like two big approaches that people take to actually do this in practice. The first being like fine tuning, especially LoRa. When you think about kind of just take the model and try to push it in this sort of direction, arguably RLHF does that. DPO, direct preference optimization, does that. And then the second is like prompt tuning. I'm curious if you've heard of prompt tuning by any chance. <laughs> so prompt tuning is the idea of like, what if there are specific tokens, like take a deep breath, that instead of being thought of in terms of like normal English words, what if we actually took prompts? took tokens, sorry, in the prompt and actually had the model learn it. So what if there was like some phrase that was like be smart or something that you could represent by let's say five tokens and those tokens are in a high dimensional embedding space. So the idea is like what if you could actually train a model 
to perform a specific task by just learning new tokens in the vocabulary. So you can imagine like a dumb example would be very simply, if you wanted to train, you ask a model to like summarize this text, summarize this text could mean any of a million things, right? There are a lot of types of summaries. But then maybe like my assistant knows how to write summaries for me. And at some point through time, she learns through examples how to write like a Daniel summary. And it's not that she like changed her knowledge, changed her information, but she developed this new vocabulary, this new concept called like a Daniel summary. So what if you could have a model learn new tokens in the vocabulary, like write a Daniel summary or take a deep breath, be intelligent? I'm curious. So the, the framing here is essentially like, what if prompts, rather than being handcrafted, are learned in order to steer the model in a direction that's arbitrary? Do you think that there is like a potential for machine learning to just take the place of prompt engineers like that? I think definitely part of it. I mean, again, this whole like chat GPTs that just got released, like if you play with that, it prompts you to write a prompt. Right. It asks you follow up questions of like how you want to do this and how you want to do that. Right. So to some extent that already exists. And then if you think about it also, like that kind of is what an agent is, where it like plans out the steps that it takes. So it is to some extent trying to think in, in that type of situation. But if you look at the chat GPTs, right, there still needs to be you or the prompt engineer to answer those questions and be like, Oh, I meant this or I meant that. Right. But is there a world where you could kind of put this into production and hook it up to some end metrics of like user satisfaction and then have the model optimize itself based on that? Yeah, I think 100%. So if I'm understanding what you're talking about, like what if prompt engineering like just matures and becomes this like very AI-centric approach where an AI actually like prompts you to prompt it, right? Like so it writes a summary. Maybe the example would be it says like here are two summaries. Can you give me a feel of which one you thought was more the right vibe? You're like, oh, the first one because it was more concise. And it's like, all right, let's give this another try. And this could be entirely like LLM based. Could be a model intelligently like active learning, learning how to write its own prompt. Right. That'd be pretty cool. So I guess one question then there is always the like, are prompt engineers smart or stupid? kind of thing, to put it in very like <laughs> blunt terms, right? I think there's two framings of the world basically with prompt engineers. One is like prompt engineers are really freaking smart, right? Like giving instructions is hard. If I am telling someone on my team how to do a certain project, I have to be like really intelligent to describe the project well and have them be able to perform it step by step. And like the best managers in the world, you know, are able to write instructions concretely intelligently. And then there's the exact opposite framing, which is basically like, no, the intelligence belongs to the model. The model can make its own plan. So all the model really needs from you is an understanding of what you're trying to do. And so basically, like anyone can go step by step and help the model figure out what it's trying to do. So in the case of like summaries, you know, you need a genius to write a really great prompt that describes what a perfect summary looks like. But maybe you don't need a genius to just say like, that looks good, that looks bad. What do you think? Do you think prompt engineers are smart or dumb? I think at the end of the day, like the problem is that in both those scenarios that you described, there still needs to be a, uh, like an engineer or not an engineer, someone in the loop that said that this is good, this is bad. And undoubtedly, there will be edge cases where it's going to be kind of sophisticated, right? Where it's like, I don't know what I meant in that case. I mean, I'm sure like you've had this experience when you're trying to describe a project to build for the team, right? And then like you didn't think of a certain edge case. And then one of the engineers came in and was like, okay, what about in this situation? How do we deal with this? And then like, that's a good question, right? What do I want? What do I want to accomplish? What do I want to do? What is the user? Mm. So I think it's like, and then it's almost like you need a product manager or project manager that's really smart. I can say like, I don't know what to tell the model, but I can get that answer somewhere. Yeah. But also maybe the model could help you. Honestly, I think that's a good point. Like, you know, it could ask you, okay, you know, you have this like model that's helping you prompt itself. And then it asks you a situation, what do you want to do in this scenario? And you're like, you know what? That's a good question. Then you could like ask back the LLM, like, okay, 
can you give me, you know, what would be the pros and cons of this situation? What would be the unintended consequences of this situation versus the unintended consequences of that situation? And then like you could go out and like reason and write all the things out there. But I think at the end of the day, like if you tell, like for example, like, there are like a thousand CRM apps out there, right? HubSpot, Salesforce, Monday.com, whatever, right? There's like tons and tons and tons of CRM apps. Now, you want to say like, okay, I'm a new startup. I'm going to build a CRM. I'm not going to hire engineers. I'm going to just tell GPT, right? The space of viable CRMs is infinite. So like for you to say like, oh, I'll just tell the GPT to make the CRM and I'll make it out. Like, where is it going to land, right? Like which one of these CRMs is it going to land, right? If you just let it to go wild, we'll probably make something in between them, right? I don't know, right? But you need some of that creative push, that like that vision, that direction. Maybe the LM can learn itself and kind of help you facilitate that. But like, even if the LM is super smart, right? Like a genius doesn't know which CRM will be the best. Like you kind of got to try things out. And so it's an interesting analogy. I like, I really like this CRM analogy because I think it translates to all kinds of technical products, especially like you ask a model to write you a website. Obviously, you know, a smart enough model could write you a website, but will it build you an average website? Will it build, you know, a diverse set of websites? Will it build just like one, you know, and, and that's where you're kind of saying like, a prompt engineer could fit in as the intelligent person that knows what a good website design looks like, or it could be the opposite. It could be that directing the model too much is a bad idea, and actually letting the model, you know, experiment and A/B test twenty websites is better. Yeah. So I think one thing I would like underline here is not that the prompt engineer is the intelligent person that tells the you know model what to build. The prompt engineer is the owner, so they have to tell the prompt, the LLM, what they want. At the end of the day, because there is no one good website, there are infinite ah. good websites, right? And so the hard part is just knowing what you want. Yeah. I got you. hundred percent. Because like, yeah, I guess like it gets into this whole discussion of creativity and what is creativity? What is, what, like, is that a computational endeavor or whatever? Like, or is that something else, right? I mean, if we are talk, talking about the art side, I think there is the separation between creativity on the art side and more on the scientific side here. If we are talking about the art side, there's, I guess, the related thing of like, imagine you're prompting mid-journey. There are two ways you can prompt mid-journey effectively within the paradigm we're talking about. There's, you say, you know, draw me a great painting. And then there's like an artist who comes along and gives like incredibly detailed five paragraph prompts that it gives to mid-journey. And the interesting thing is like, is it a matter of like, right now, the state of the art is that really great artists produce way, way better art with mid-journey than I will, because I'm going to write a bad prompt. Mm. On the other hand, there could be that flipping point at any point in the future, right, where either... I just say, right, make me a great painting and, and Midjourney does a better job than it would with a really long prompt because it has a chance to be creative on its own. Yeah. Or on the flip side, you have some auto prompt engineering where like you have ChatGPT or something, it generates a painting, it sees why it's bad and then it keeps prompting until ultimately the last prompt after a giant chain from ChatGPT is way better than the best artists. Yeah. So I think it really get you know, it really gets down to a philosophical discussion of what you think creativity is. Because let me ask you something, Dan. Do you think that of the skill of an artist is the ability to, you know, paint straight lines and, you know, mix different colors. Like, I think I, you can almost anybody to do that, right? I think, like, what makes an artist great, right, is the ability to add some form of, like, personality and like, divine or whatever you want to call it to this work of art. It's really funny you mentioned this. I don't know if I mentioned our first Sling Talk was actually on can AI be creative and we went very deep just on the topic of AI creativity. But I would say, I mean, I think on this topic, I've somewhat developed an opinion. I think there's a lot of creativity, you know, there's creativity in terms of results versus creativity and process. But in terms of like, regardless, like, 
you know, when you look at a painting, I would agree, it's not just the masterful, like, what do the strokes look like? There is a lot to the diversity. There is a lot to like combining areas from lots of different domains, doing something that's never been done before. But regardless, there doesn't seem anything intrinsic about whether it's done by a human or AI in terms of how creative it is. Or do you disagree with that? Do you think that there's something special about the human element bringing in the creativity here? Uh, I don't know. It's hard to prove that there is creativity or not. Like, that's not something that you could... I would argue against that. I think you can prove it, but I won't dive. I guess, okay. So you would say you could prove that there is no difference. I would say if we're talking about proofs, the relevant topic, I'd love to jump into is just on evals, right? Like, so prompt engineering, you know, because if you wanted to evaluate whether or not a model is creative, you have to think about evals, right? You have to think, what would it mean to evaluate model creativity? Analogously, there's the lower bar of like, if I tell an AI that it's like going to be the hotel front desk, I could still evaluate it on like the quality of its outputs, you know, like, do they sound good? Does it help with the problem? First on, I guess you guys do evals on your platform, right? Yeah, we allow you to like, batch run models and compare them. And then actually running like the end score of like what this model was versus the other models, we don't have integrations with it yet. Like we ask you to put in, like we have a slider that you put in. But that's a good discussion. So there are, there's a wide world there. Wide world from, I would say, like very classic evals, which is like regular expression, string similarity, cosine, you know, uh, distance. To a ground truth, where like if you have a ground truth, you compare to the ground truth, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then there's also like just equality of string. It really depends on the context which one works. Mm. Like I was talking to someone, so like for example, there's a platform that we really like called PromptFoo. It's an open source platform made by, I think his name's Ian. He is like heads Discord's LLM team, right? And they do like use a lot of like just string comparisons and stuff like that because it works well at scale to make sure that new versions of the prompts don't screw anything up, right? Then on the other side of this, you have people who are using LLMs to rank the response, right? Like They'll give it a rubric of like what the score the response line, and they'll ask the LLM to do that. Yeah, that's another way to take a look at it. We actually do have support for that on Slingshot. We call it AI feedback because there was the it was originally like the RLAIF paper that we found really inspirational, like reinforcement learning with AI feedback. More recently, there's the DPO paper, and there was one actually from like a week or two ago from Hugging Face. What's the DPO? What's DPO for? Direct preference optimization. It kind of has replaced RLHF and RLAIF, just the reinforcement learning part. Would love to that. We'll dive into it in another podcast. But um, on the eval side, I think AI feedback is just a fascinating and epic topic. The important bit here is that, like, if you're dealing with a creative task where like the output is uncertain, it's really, really hard to compare with the ground truth, right? Like, the more the more your task is like take something big and make it small, you know, I'm making this up, translate from English to Spanish, right? At least like the domain size and the range size are similar. If it were something like write me a poem, there's just no way that you can use, you know, blue scores or any kind of ground truth evaluation to evaluate a poem. I think regardless of AI or human feedback, though, we can both agree it's really expensive to evaluate models. So I guess... Exactly. Exactly. So that, that's why I think like yeah. AI feedback will become more and more popular as you have like cheaper alternatives or things like that to train it. But I think right now at like scale, like using GPT-4 to score uh, your results yeah. is expensive. It's also slow. And as much as it sucks, like if you do use AI feedback, you have to evaluate your AI feedback. And then, yeah. and that's, it sounds like an infinite recursion problem. It's not, it's a one step recursion problem. It is solvable. You can evaluate AI feedback, but it does mean that you have to be serious before you're really going to invest in AI feedback. And if you're trying something out for the first time, you're probably not going to dive down this route, which I think going back to the, like the art versus science of prompt engineering, it sort of errs towards the art side to me which is to say that like, if you could paint every painting imaginable, right, like you would take that approach, you wouldn't paint once, but if you can only paint once, and in this case, right, like if you can only write your prompts once, because maybe you can evaluate one prompt, but you're not going to be able to systematically evaluate 100, like, 
you better get it right. right. Do you think that there's that kind of like AI art element that like, even if there are better methods, you know, we still will have for a long, long time sort of the art of prompt engineering just because it's expensive to do the science of prompt engineering? Yeah, I mean, I think the price will go down. We're already seeing that like every single GPT announcement, the price goes down, right? But yeah, you are like, like you can't ask a GPT to make an infinite amount of prompt, like it's impossible, right? So like we are limited by that. I'll go back on evals. There's one other set of evals that I think is also good to talk about, which is customer in the loop evals, which is like kind of a human in the loop type thing, but it's like you look either like very, very simply, you have like an upvote, downvote, which is kind of dumb, or like you connect it to your like segment or something like that. And like, let's say you're an e-commerce website, like does this person buy the product? Yeah. Or like, does this person click? How many times do they click? Right. That's also another way of having eval in your prompt. Um, I just want to mention that. And realistically, like for all normal machine learning applications, like ads, I think like is there's usually a separation between like so for ads, one common framing is like predict the likelihood that someone clicks on this ad, right. and you could train a model and you can get accuracy there. And then you could actually at, at runtime, you don't actually care about those numbers per se. You just care about things like revenue, right? So you actually say like, okay, right. we have two models, and at the end of the day, it's not two models; it's two like giant regimes with like a bunch of models working together. Do, you know, can we A-B test? Can we launch this against 1% of our customers? Does it make more money? No question. Like when it comes to LLMs, there's so much complexity. There is no way to evaluate at the end of the day, but to just release. That said, I think like if you went to a team of prompt engineers and said like, here's what I want to do. I'm sure you can collect 100 prompts. I doubt you could really evaluate all 100 head to head. You're probably going to need someone who just asserts that they're intelligent and therefore tells you which, I don't know, three prompts are probably the best just because it's so hard to head to head evaluate all 100. I also think it depends on the use case. So if your use case is like, for example, you are a Shopify app where you allow uh, based on like an image or like a description of a product, they'll give you like you know, for SEO tags or something like that, right? That's like relatively easier to evaluate, to A-B test, to whatever, right? As opposed to like you're writing poems, that is impossible. I, I agree with you. At that point, it's like... Yeah. And I think, although, like, between me and you, I very much think that, like, the exciting use cases for AI, like, there's sort of the low-hanging fruit of AI, which is, like, take LLMs, replace tasks that can be done elsewhere, but can be done with LLMs, zero shot. So, like, sentiment classification of tweets. Yeah, we cared about it for a really long time. It was really hard. Now it's easy. Yeah. Yeah. I think the exciting tasks are, like, can an, a lawyer write my legal contract or like my lawsuit. And I think those are the ones that are like the huge realm, the 99% of use cases that don't exist yet, but will change the world. And, you know, not only are they the exciting ones, they're the ones that are really freaking hard to evaluate, right? Yeah. Do you tend to see more of the easy use cases or the hard use cases? It depends. A lot of the startups that come to our platform, so for example, we have a lot platform mid-page that uses us and um, they're you know, a tool for lawyers. A lot of the smaller startups are going to the moon. A lot of the, like, established companies are coming in and, and, you know, maybe just only using LLMs internally, right? Or maybe they're using it for small feature on the product. There's so many modalities here. Just like, our difficulties like what to double-click on? Because prompt engineering for a highly sophisticated, like, AI uh, PR bot is much different. Not much, but it's different than, like, you know, say, like, a parenting app, right? like the type of features and functionalities that they need are different. Yeah. But um, one thing I want to talk about with like law and like those other things, which I, I think is interesting, like the perspective, and I'm curious to hear what you think about this too. Like I think it's going to be like kind of gradual in those markets, right? Because those are like heavily regulated markets where it's like, if you come in and you're like, here, just use this, like do not pay. They came in and, uh, I forgot his name. Joshua Broder. Yeah. Yeah. 
So he came in and he said that like, oh, I'm offering any lawyer, you know, a million dollars, whatever he, a hundred thousand, I don't remember what he said. It's just, just put like your AirPods in and we'll tell you via our LLM what to say. Yeah, that guy's really cool. Yeah, he's funny. He's, he actually is an angel investor in, in Trump. So we asked. Oh, yeah. So he, then I like, there's someone who's trying to sue him and he basically retracted that offer. Yeah. <laughs> but like, that, like to do something like that is a lot of regulation. A lot of older people in that field are not going to allow it. That's true. But I would just mention, like, he's that you know he's a great example of someone who has pushed the envelope here repeatedly and done a lot of stuff that have you know upset people, <laughs> and he's changed our status quo. So, but okay, but that that's really the low hanging fruit. You go the other, you go the other direction, right? Like for example, just ticketing and that type of stuff, or like you're a co-pilot for lawyers, and then from there you grow. Yeah, you go from both, right? You go from both directions. Before arguing court with earbuds in your ear. Yeah, I mean, I exactly. you can see why that's a little bit of an extreme. I'm not totally sure why he was approaching that particular problem. But I think like that would be an example of the extreme end. There is the like medium end of like, I personally, I definitely put all legal documents through an AI. And we have like legal AI that we built in-house that we use that like specifically can summarize contracts and find clauses worth consideration. Because we built it, like we're not going to get in trouble for using it. I think if we try to advertise it as a product, for sure, you know, we're going to get in trouble. Bar associations are going to say, hey, you're practicing law without a license. Totally fair. But there is always going to be that back door. And I think that's sort of the, you know, the do not pay back door of like, what about those self-serve use cases? Like, I kind of imagine that like, if AI for legals gets more and more powerful, there will be those back doors. Like, it might take time for regulation to push ahead, but you know, progress will happen. Like, whether it takes one year or five, it's not going to take 25, you know? Especially for like contract understanding and stuff like that, where it's like, yeah, email a lawyer, get charged like $2,000 and have them get off 50 calls and, you know, several back and forth, like just send it to GPT and it'll work. Exactly. People are already doing it. That's kind of the, like what I've heard, I have to say, I've talked to a lot of lawyers who have told me that GPT-4 should get sued, OpenAI should get sued. They haven't yet, as far as I know. But like, there is no reason why we're talking about the future. We're talking about a status quo. Today, people use OpenAI for legal advice. They also use it for medical advice. They have yet to be sued. It might happen any day now. But I'm just mentioning, like, this isn't just sci-fi. That's also status quo on the regulation side. What is sci-fi is OpenAI actually being good enough to replace your doctor. 100%. So I can tell you a story about that. And that's like a different discussion. I have a bunch of people I know in the medical field. My siblings are, are doctors. And I have a friend who is doing a rotation at a hospital. He said they had a patient come in who self-diagnosed via chat GPT, basically self-diagnosed completely wrong. Like, had pancreatic cancer. <laughs> like, but he came in and used chat GPT and said, yeah, like an ulcer or something like that. And um, it's just interesting. Like, you're going to have cases like that. Before chat GPT, that happened also. Like, people would just not believe their diagnosis or just, like, go on Google or go to the library and be like, oh, I need to eat some herbs and I'll be fine. Exactly. But I, I guess I wonder while we're talking, what we're talking about right now is super interesting because it's basically GBT4 is clearly not good enough to replace doctors. Anyone in the field knows that. If you're not in the field, that is not obvious. It's really hard to know the limits. And there is sort of like a discipline that emerges, which is like as a consumer using GBT4, learning better and better how to interact with it as a doctor, right? And eventually you learn, because you mentioned the example of like the parenting kind of situation. When I talk to, personally, I use GPT-4 as a doctor all the time, even though I shouldn't, even though it gives me bad information. Sorry about that. But I have definitely gotten better at asking, at bringing up the right information, you know, mention symptoms the right way, give it context, tell it my age. I actually have personally just like thought about just copying and pasting in a bunch of medical information. What I wonder is like, for those types of use cases, do we end up in a world where prompt engineering increasingly becomes a discipline and we get more and more narrow prompts, for example, when it comes to these medical domains? Or in the medical domain, do we get 
perhaps more specialized, high quality models, and then just have everyone in the world become a prompt engineer, right? Where you learn how to pass. So the real question is, do we end up with more prompt engineers or does everyone become a prompt engineer? Yeah. So I think it's like probably a little bit of both, to be honest, right? Like where in the medical domain, they ready you, like they don't memorize everything. It's like impossible. There's so many medicines, so many other things. They use something like very promising is called the up to date. It's like a website where they type in some symptoms and stuff like that. And then it gives them back or they type in a drug. It gives them back all the information or they'll Google, right? Something like that is ready for a lag application to make it, you know, an order of magnitude quicker to do, right? And then in that case, the doctor will have to become a prompt engineer to some extent. Like when they ask the question, yeah. the doctor knows the context and the doctor's like, oh, this is a, you know, this types of thing or that type of thing. And they'll have to do that. And, but the question is, is like, will, will you be going on up to date and like asking these questions and stuff like that? Or will your doctor? Or will your doctor? Yeah. I think cheese will. There will be human things that do that, but it will still be. I definitely think. I mean, I'm just thinking about my wife was sick of it back. She went to the doctor. Doctor was like pretty damn useless. And I've been with my wife now for seven and a half years. And this was the first time that she went to the doctor with a complaint other than just like for normal stuff. First time in that entire relationship. And she went to the doctor because she like was feeling badly enough and she got like no help. And those are the types of situations where I'm thinking like the issue was not that the doctor did not you know, Google it and they weren't good enough. I'm sure the doctor was excellent. I think it's just about the availability. It's just the supply and demand. Doctors are way too in demand, didn't have enough time for her. She ended up going back to the doctor a second time and just being like, hey, what the hell? But I think those are the situations where the huge unlock has to be on the consumer side. It has to be that she learns yeah. how to prompt engineer. And I think she did go to the doctor because she prompt engineered. She went to ChatGPT and she was convinced to go to the doctor. So I think those kinds of like raise the consumer have to be way more impactful than like raise the expert, no? Yeah. I also make one last comment on the doctor thing. Like, I think my perspective about the medical field that like going to the doctor is not just an act of science. It's an act of like therapy to some extent. Like the doctor, just as important as like really. Maybe you're a doctor. I got to push back here. Maybe this is your doctor. I hear this. It's so funny to me. I think the doctors stereotypically are, are me. I know. I think there's a diversity. This is something I've just been hearing. I've lived a little bit of time in three countries. And I got to say, like, there's some very different practices in different countries and different places, different socioeconomic statuses in the US. Personally, I have never felt that way about a doctor. That's why I'm just like laughing about it a little bit. I think there is like the family doctor sense where doctors are great at being therapists. But I think by and large, ChatGPT is a way better, you know, therapist type doctor that talks to you about your symptoms, says I'm sorry, and asks further questions than doctors. In my experience, I think it's just because they have such limited time. The whole point of a therapist is to give you time. And the one thing doctors don't have, in my experience, at least, is time. It's time, yeah. So yeah, I think like probably world where like you could go to a chat GPT in the waiting before the doctor. That would be interesting. Just because then you get the whole legal approval on top of that, where like the chat GPT asks you all your questions, goes through everything, like, you know, back and forth. And then yeah. the doctor sees you for 10 minutes, he looks at the report ChatGPT generated and then approves whatever ChatGPT said already. And maybe that's the path. Could be. It's almost like the doctors in a loop kind of framing. And I think it's so funny. There's a doctor who I have been working with closely recently just on some AI use cases. He advises some AI medical startups. And what's funny is he runs a practice where it's a very untraditional practice because he onboards patients for like 90 minutes. And he starts by asking every question about their health, about what they eat, how much time do you spend in the sun, how do you exercise, when do you exercise, how much, you know, just every question under the sun. And the biggest resource he's missing, of course, is time. He can't do this for everyone. And his dream 
you know, he's a doctor, he's not like a computer scientist, but his dream is, can we scale this? Can we just get ChatGPT to ask all these questions? Because the key was connecting, asking all these questions, getting the full picture. It's not therapy, though, right? Like it's science, to him at least, right? It's not that you just tell someone, great job. Right. But that, so, so maybe you misunderstood my point about therapy, but like that is like kind of what I mean, right? That ability to like ask the questions and stuff like that. All this moves very far from prompt engineering and in an interesting way though, right? Like these are not things that you're prompt engineering, right? Yeah, like conversation. I mean, you do, you need to like kind of tell the LLM to like what to ask and how to stay on topic. But I guess it's not like classical prompt engineering. Well, what I'm wondering is, if anything, isn't it the opposite? Isn't it that we're saying that a model has to be so good that it prompts the user, it asks the questions, it knows what to ask, it knows how, and it's able to have a long conversation? And it's almost like, if you have to prompt engineer a model, I think about this with in-context learning. Actually, just to address on in-context learning, I mentioned the medical textbook idea before, like, what if you drop an entire medical textbook into a prompt? And to me, there's something a little ridiculous about that, because, like, doctors aren't medical textbooks. And the magic of ChatGPT, like, lately, personally, I ChatGPT just launched their new feature where, like, you know, all plugins are built in. I personally turned it off because like it wastes so much time Googling and then regurgitating the first article. I get way better results when it just tells me stuff from memory. True, it's wrong some of the time, not that often. Some of the time it's wrong, it hallucinates. But at the end of the day, I get these way more high quality, synthesized, intelligent answers than the ones that I get when it just regurgitates the first Google link. And I kind of wonder if the same thing is true in the medical domain, like that a great AI for medicine is one that understands medicine, that knows how to behave like a doctor. And the more prompt engineers it is, the more it's using in-context learning, kind of the dumber it is and the less useful. <laughs> you end off with that question. There's a whole discussion. What you're saying is pretty vain. You're saying that like this whole rag or, or like, you know, searching the web and stuff like that is not the way you go and it should just be from trained memory. I don't know. Like, I, that's also very dangerous because at least rag you have attribution. I mean, and like, well, let's have a second podcast. <laughs> it's like, yeah. It's basically, what we, we've been talking about though, this whole time, like that pain. Models. I think, like, the rag, the like, lookups, I'm not saying they're not useful. It's just, I do think they've been overblown like crazy. I guess it is a great topic. We should dive in deep next time. But let me just ask are there any resources you'd recommend to folks for keeping up with machine learning and AI updates these days? Twitter, definitely Twitter, you know, like OpenAI, just seeing what they post because they're the, the leaders right now. So, whatever they're releasing, looking at their documentation, following like the popular libraries, because like if you follow them at least on Twitter, you see what they're adding support for, which is definitely a like a response to what everybody else is doing. Right. So if, like Langchain, Llama Index, like those types of libraries, whatever they're adding support for is what people are talking about. So I think those are all the big things to kind of keep up with. But it's hard. It's just hard. Things are moving very quick. Yeah, it is. Awesome. Well, it's been great having you here with me today. Thanks again for joining us. This has been Jonathan Pedouim on the future of prompt engineering. His product is called PromptLayer, and it's the first platform built for prompt engineers. Again, we're Slingshot. We're a model studio for generative AI. If you're working on high-value generative AI use cases, please feel free to reach out at hello at slingshot.xyz. Thanks again. That's a wrap for today. Thanks so much for joining us. If you're an ML enthusiast, I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or at hello at slingshot.xyz. We'll be back with more next week.